Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. Exodus 19, 5 through 7, and Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall keep and speak to the Israelites. So so Moses came, summoned the elders of the peoples, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For the sixth day the the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the, la- in the land of the Lord your God, the la- land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, we have been in a series that has been looking at the, the big story that the Bible has been telling. 
And thus far, we've been in the first book of the Bible. We've only been in Genesis. And so today, we're going to hit the accelerator just a little bit. And I hope that this series has begun to just, uh, you know, open your eyes on some things. Um, I had this experience during my time in my undergraduate studies. Uh, I, I had just become a Christian my, late in my junior year. And I went to college, and my intention was to go to law school, and that was always kind of the direction I thought I was going. But the nice thing about going to law school is, undergrad, you can kind of choose your own way uh, because you have a test that you have to take and pass and do well at. So I was like, you know, I, I've just become a Christian. I really want to study the Bible and just have a sense for it. And so that opportunity was afforded to me at the school I was at. And I remember just these moments where I would, uh, for, for, often for the first time, would understand these different portions of the Scripture and would just be like, oh, my goodness. This is so much more beautiful than I had ever realized. Because I had had the experience prior to that of, you know, trying to open my Bible and read in places like Joshua or Deuteronomy and be like, I really don't know what's going on here. And it's, this seems a lot different than Jesus, um, you know, some of the stuff that's being commanded. And so I, my, my sincere hope for us throughout this series is that there's just this, this almost awe-inspiring, this awakening of like, wow, God, you're so beautiful. Um, because what we've seen is that having information about God doesn't form us as a people. You know, there's this, there's this weird sense in some of the pastoral circles I run in, is that people will say, this is the most biblically illiterate generation or time since the Bible has been available in print. And I don't know whether that's true or not. But there's almost this like, like, kind of like make America biblically literate again kind of mentality. And I look back at that and I'm like, you know what? When America was quote unquote biblically literate, they were fostering a slave trade. They were, you know, the industrial revolution was going on. I was like, I don't know if that's the answer to the problem. So the answer is not information, but formation. Because this story when we read it well, is so beautiful that it's big enough to give our lives to. It's big enough to find those pieces of our life that seem so disparate and disconnected and see God's got something to say about that. God has blessed that. God has given me a vision for that. And so today, I hope that we just continue along that journey. And that is my uh, just unwavering hope and my sort of my pastoral sense and kind of the thing I've staked my life on is that this story is good enough for anybody, whether they be, uh, you know, spending their lives, uh, you know, serving children, whether they be spending their lives as a Ph.D. student and everything sort of around that spectrum. This story is big enough to give our lives to. And so today we're going to find ourselves in the book of Exodus. And what we're going to do is pack a story that could be like 10 sermon series into one talk and sort of survey at a very high level this incredible story. But God said to Abraham, and Abraham we met last week in Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to him, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. This was a promise, a prediction that was given to Abraham in Genesis. And today we're going to see the moment where that prediction comes to fruition. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and that whole generation. 
But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase. And in the event of war, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities for Pharaoh. The people of the promise, the promise that was given to Abraham that you will be a great nation and that through you all the nations on the earth will be blessed, these people have been reduced to mere machinery. They are slaves. And this story is an epic story, an epic conflict, a clash between God and his emissaries, Moses and Aaron, and the forces of Pharaoh and maybe the forces that are behind Pharaoh. And we're going to skim over it ever so quickly. And so we've set the scene a bit. The people of the promise are enslaved. And then we're introduced to this man named Moses. Moses was protected from the murderous decrees of Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh had said that all the young Hebrew boys and girls should be put to death. But these faithful midwives, the people that helped bring children into the world, they did not heed Pharaoh's decree. They would hide the babies. They would help the mothers along. And so there continued to be Hebrew babies born. And Moses was one of those babies. And at three months old, when his mother could no longer hide him, she placed him in a basket in the Nile River. And he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and then raised in the house of Pharaoh. He has a unique experience of privilege amongst his people while his people are enslaved. And one day, because he can freely walk about, he goes and he observes how his people are being treated. You see, Moses still knows, even despite his privilege, that he is a Hebrew, that these are his people. And he sees one of his people being mistreated. And this fills Moses with just profound sense of anger and indignation. And Moses responds in that anger. He takes the Egyptian and kills him and hides his body in the sand. He thinks he's gotten away with it. But the next day, Moses is walking through the working camps again. He says something to one of his fellow countrymen. He says, oh, and the countryman says, are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses knows in that moment that his secret is found out. He knows that Pharaoh will find out, will seek to have him put to death. And so Moses runs to the desert. And for 40 years, Moses has adopted his new life as a foreigner, as an alien in a far-off land. He's a shepherd. And he wanders the wilderness every single day. I wonder how often he would think back to his life in Egypt. I wonder how often he would recall those moments, but we're not told. We just know that Moses had made peace with his life when one day... A day where he's living his normal life, tending his herd, far from his true home, exiled east of Eden, if it were. One day, it says in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, God called out to him from a burning bush. And the voice said to him, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, this is weird. There's a bush that's on fire that's talking to me, but here I am. Then the voice said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, when God meets us, he reminds us. Because without memory, we are a people adrift, but God never forgets. God remembers, I am the God. I have made a promise, and I will not go back on that promise. And Moses hears these words. It says that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. And it's here in this moment, one of the pivotal moments as we look at the big story that the Bible is telling, that we find a profound truth that is woven throughout the thread of the scriptures. God always hears the cries of the oppressed. This is who God is. And notice what he says. I know their sufferings. The Hebrew there is yada. I know experiential, not just I'm aware. I have seen it. God is saying, I know their sufferings. I am suffering alongside of them. And we will see as we meet Jesus of Nazareth that God is the God who suffers alongside of us. God always hears the cries of the oppressed. And Moses, in spite of all of his flaws and sins, is chosen as the one to lead God's people. Again, we don't have time today to do this story justice. But the confrontation between God's emissaries, Moses and his brother Aaron and Pharaoh, as God demonstrates his incomparable power with plagues upon the nation, is just, it's so epic. Somebody should make a movie about it. <laughs> We're like... We're getting to the point, it's like, I know about the movie, The Ten Commandments, and that movie's too old for me, but I'm not sure. There's probably some people in this church that don't even know that exists. The Prince of Egypt, right? But God pre greets the pride of imperial power and idolatry with his overwhelming strength. And at this, as this conflict reaches a crescendo, Moses gives one last warning to Pharaoh. Let my people go, or there will be an angel of death that moves throughout the camp. This is the last and the final plague, the plague that breaks the back of the empire. And it says in Exodus 12, verse 29, as we move through the story, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock, Pharaoh arose in the night he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Now, this final plague is a somber event. Like it's, it's, it's at one moment, this moment of great victory and triumph, and at one moment, this great moment of anguish, right? It raises questions for us that the text is not necessarily asking. It doesn't ask the questions that we so easily ask, like, okay, God, 
Like when we read that, we're like, is God now partnering with death? All the firstborn in Egypt, all these people that were innocent bystanders, like even the Geneva uh, conventions say, like civilians are off limits in warfare, right? And yet here in this moment, we have this very, very terse and very just matter of fact way of saying that, that God uses this moment of vengeance and justice to allow his people to escape from Egypt. God is good and loving and creative. We've seen this throughout the beginning of the Bible. God's speaking the world into existence. But now, when conflict comes, is God just resorting to the, the weapons of warfare of the world? Is this what God does? Is God just as pragmatic as we are? And Pastor Greg Boyd talks about this moment in his book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And great book, a lot of stuff in there. But I do think, even though this text is not necessarily asking this question, we might be asking this question. And so just a brief momentary aside. What it says in Exodus 12, 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. This is the, the threat, the promise that is given to them. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door. You see the people of Israel, if you're not familiar with the story, were told to kill a lamb, put its blood on their door, and that every door that had the blood of the lamb upon it, the, the Lord or the angel of death, the destroyer, would pass over. And that is how they would be liberated from Egypt. And it says in verse 23 of Exodus 12, For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. And so, is it God doing this? We're not 100% certain, because there's actually two agents that are listed here in verse 23. The Lord will pass over. But it says that the Lord will not allow the destroyer to enter the house. And so throughout the scriptures, what we see is that God's protective presence, his blessing, the way that God draws near, often inhibits the work of evil, inhibits the work of entropy and death. And oftentimes, God's judgment is him simply removing his presence, allowing sin to run its course. It is said throughout this, this text, this story, that Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. And God will not impose himself upon our will. God will not co-opt us in a way. Pharaoh keeps turning away from God. And eventually Pharaoh, as representative of his people, and really Pharaoh has claims that are kind of saying he's a God himself. And Pharaoh, as representative of his people, has been uh, hardening his heart, has been turning away from God. And it would seem in this moment in Exodus 12 that God allows that to run its full course. That God removes his protective hand of blessing and allows the destroyer to do its work. Now, there's so much more we could go into on that, and that is a big fulcrum point. But I do think it's important, as we're telling the story of this big and beautiful God, that we come to these moments where you're like, okay, is God just killing the firstborn in Egypt? That's going to raise some questions for us. And so I do think it's important. And I also want to say... If you have questions about these kind of things, Alpha is a great spot for you. But also, I'm your pastor. I love to unpack this stuff. And not in a way where it's like, here, let me show you the answer. <laughs> for me, this stuff is born out of a life wrestling with God. And it will be for you too. 
And so I, I don't say that to say this is the right way, this is the wrong way. I'm just saying for me that the, the suggestion of another way of a perhaps has been a great gift to me. And oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we need to keep that in mind. All right, let's continue on in the story. As the people leave hurriedly, they carry off the treasures. So as, as all of this unfolds on this Passover night, Pharaoh finally says, go, get out of here. Moses has been saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, I can't take anymore. Leave with your people. And it says the promise that was given to Abraham is that you will leave enriched by the nation that has enslaved you. The people carry off treasures and they run off into the wilderness. And the text tells us that God takes them through the wilderness, that he guides them every step of the way, cloud by day, fire by night. But as Moses realizes the ram, or as, excuse me, as Pharaoh realizes the ramifications of his decision, that he's let his labor force go, that the people that were building his palaces and were keeping his life at ease are now gone. He has a change of heart. Again, his heart is hardened. He receives the reports that the people that have left Egypt are now in the wilderness and they've come to the point where they are just have their backs against the wall at the Red Sea and he knows that he has them. They're trapped. Now, it's so important that we do this as we read these stories. Put yourself in the shoes of a person who is a recently liberated slave from Egypt. All this stuff is happening so quickly. You've been a slave your whole life. Your people have been enslaved for 400 years. Like, like Slavery is a world without possibility in so many ways. All the freedoms that we take for granted, where we get to direct the moments of our day, these people have had their days ordered for them. And, and they have borne the scars when those, those, they have not followed the ways that were ordered for them. And now... They're free and they're running off into the wilderness and they're just carrying treasures and everything they can take with them. And you don't really know where you're going. It's like the lemur mentality. You're just following a bunch of people. You're like, I don't know, those guys are running, so we're running too. And just as you are starting to get a sense of what freedom might feel like to breathe that air, you start to hear the sound of thunder. And you look in the sky, and there is not a cloud in the sky. And what you realize is, as you turn around, that there is a cloud of dust that is forming. And out of that cloud of dust, slowly emerging chariots and soldiers, people with weapons that you do not, by and large, have. And they are coming towards you. What kind of terror, what kind of anxiety and fear would fill you in that moment? And the people say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've brought us out into the wilderness to die? But God is not done. God tells Moses in Exodus 14, 14, and this is such a fundamental truth about what it means to be a child of God. The Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is to keep still. The Lord will fight for you. And Ecclesia, how many times do we believe the lie that all of the weight of the world rests upon our shoulders? 
that unless we take things into our hand, when we feel that rising anxiety, we feel that sense that the future is uncertain, and we start, we start to do whatever we can, we start to chip away, the Lord will fight for you. How many times do we believe the lie that we are destined for loneliness and despair? The Lord will fight for you. This is who God is. God hears the cries of the oppressed, and he sees them through to freedom. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. And the Lord places that presence, that mysterious presence, the cloud of his embodied presence between the Egyptians and between the Hebrew people. It says in verse four, or 21 of chapter 14, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and their left. The breath of God, the Ruach Elohim that hovered over the waters of the deep at the beginning now blows a fresh wind, a wind of salvation, a wind of liberation. The wind of God defeats all the aspirations of empire, all that would say that might is right, that power is everything. God breathes his breath again, and the waters divide, and the people walk through on dry land. Be still, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord, the God who always hears the cries of the oppressed in a moment unlike anything in any story in the history of our world, frees a nation of slaves by his unrivaled strength. God creates a nation in this moment out of a bunch of slaves. People that were machinery are now given an identity. And Pharaoh's armies pursue the people of God onto the dry land. But the, water, the walls of the water close in upon them. It is finished. And you can imagine in that moment, now you're looking back, where before you just walked through literal dry land between two walls of water, and now you turn around and all there is is that ocean sea breeze and everything, this tumult that was raging has gone eerily, suddenly quiet. And then all of a sudden, the shout. Unlike anything you have ever heard, my favorite baseball team made the World Series last night. There were shouts in my living room, but it was nothing like this, nothing like a crowd of people seeing their freedom, tasting it, seeing that it is finished, and they raised their song. And if you remember, the first words that the people speak in the garden the first words that Adam says are at last. It is a song. It is poetry. The first words that humanity speaks are praise and worship. And the first words that the people speak on the shore here is a song of praise. Horse and rider have been cast into the sea. This is who our God is. God has brought the people from the slavery to the shores of the Red Sea. And he will then bring them to Sinai. This new people, this mixed rabble, no longer slaves, but sons and daughters imaging God anew in the world. And Sinai, the text that Daniel read for us, is the text called the Ten Commandments. And you can live your life and see those in all sorts of different places. And God has brought the people to a mountain to say, this is what it means 
This is the constitution of this new people, what it means to be formed in the image of God. You see, the Exodus story is about salvation, God parting the Red Sea, God liberating the slaves, and it's about formation. And this is what the life that Jesus calls us to, a life where he grants us his grace, he gives us his blood and his body, and he says, this is my life given to you, salvation. But he also invites us in that same moment, that same breath, to follow him, formation. And we see the first glimpses of this in the story of the Bible. God says to the people in Exodus 19 at Sinai on this mysterious and holy mountain, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. We were given a task to be made in the image of God, is to be called to be partners, cultivators. Now we see, as God is continuing to weave the story, that we are given that task anew, a priestly nation, a holy kingdom. God will give them ten commandments. The word in the Hebrew is not commandment, it's actually ten words. Ten words that will form and shape these people as people uh, where God will literally dwell, the words of the covenant. And I just want to go through these very quickly. Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first word that God gives, the first commandment, is calling the people to freedom and joyful response. God is not needy or demanding. He's not saying that you have to worship me. No, God is bearing witness to the created order, the order that we saw in Genesis, that there is no life, no flourishing, no freedom outside of right relatedness to God. He says, you shall have no other gods before me because you're no longer slaves. To have other gods before the God who made the universe is to be a slave, to elevate things that are not God, and to try to make them serve us as our gods is slavery. But you have been called to freedom. So God is saying the first thing you are to remember and to respond to is that you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven or on the earth beneath. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second word forbids the people from making any idols. Remember, the people of God did not exist in a cultural vacuum. We just saw that they were in a contested cultural space. They were the people of God in Egypt. And in the other cultures that ran parallel to the people of God at this time, the gods needed images. They needed statues, things made out of human hands in order to show what God looks like. But we were called to be a priestly nation. We were formed in the image of God. What does a priest do? You know, I don't wear the collar as I walk throughout town, but when I get the chance to tell people that I'm a pastor, I know in that moment, this happens so often, it happened to me on Friday in an Uber, but usually it comes up belatedly. 
I'm in an Uber. The guy's been, you know, talking about all kinds of stuff. He's been swearing at me, all that kind of stuff. And then we start talking about, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And he starts doing the, oh, man. Oh, I've already said way too much. Uh, so he's like, you know, he's kind of doing the thing where he's like kind of awkwardly, sheepishly. I'm like, dude, 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 I'm from New Jersey. So like everything you just said, like not anything I haven't heard in my church. And it's this idea that, but we carry the name of God in the world. And we, not just me as a pastor, somebody ordained to this, we're called to be a priestly nation. And this is the, the heart of the next commandment that goes alongside of it, that you shall not, uh, excuse me, make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Again, for so many of us, we have intuited that this is just not saying God's name in, this, in a sentence with other words in a certain way. But the Hebrew here has the connotation of carrying, is that we should not carry the name of the Lord God in vain. How much have we seen in our culture where people claiming the name of Jesus and then living in ways that are nothing like him, how much they defame his name? How much people turn away from God because of people saying that they are doing this in the name of Jesus, that is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. We were called to be a priestly kingdom. We were made in the image of God. There are no idols because each one of us is an icon of the living God. You were created to image God in the world. And you were called to carry God's name with great reverence and in service in the life of the world. To make people say, who is the God you serve? Who is this Jesus? To live in such a way that people are compelled by your life, not repelled by it. Do not carry the Lord's name in vain is a call to carry the name for the life of the world. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day. The fourth commandment, a call to Sabbath to literally stop working, to take one day and get yourself in line with the rhythms of the creator. You know who can't take a day off? Slaves. You see how fundamentally countercultural this commandment is? God is not saying, hey, I, like when that clock strikes midnight, and really for them it was actually in the evening, because for the Hebrews, the day begins in the evening, which is a great grace we could go into later. But when that clock strikes midnight on Saturday or Sunday, however you see the Sabbath, and if you're doing something, you're working, like I'm going to strike you down. This is not who God is. God is saying to a nation of slaves, people who could never stop, people who were defined by everything that they could make, that you are no longer known by what you can produce. Stop. Rest. Receive. And how many of us need that word today? That we have believed the lie that we have to produce at every moment of our lives. God is saying, stop. Rest. Receive. Salvation formation. And the rest of the commandments flow. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. These are like intuited by just about every society in the history of the world. Like people are like, yeah, we can get down with that. Don't kill people. It's not right. Don't bear false witness. And the last commandment is interesting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house your neighbor's wife, your, their male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The last commandment 
as people have, have sat with these texts for years, and the, the, the rabbis and those uh, who have uh, had these as their texts, their words, for much longer than even we as Christians have, have immersed themselves in these ten words. And you know what they have summarized and said? That these commandments flow in such a way, if you honor God first, if you don't make idols out of things of your hands, if you keep the Sabbath, if you don't carry the Lord's name in vain, if you don't kill, steal, all that other stuff, they flow in such a way that the last commandment is a summary. Not to covet, not to look at somebody else's life and say, I wish that were my life. The commandments flow in such a way that if you do these things, if you seek first these things, that you won't want somebody else's life. Salvation and formation, receiving the gift of the image of God that you were called to bear, is freedom. Looking at other people's life, whether it be through the, the, the lens that we get on Instagram, or whether it just be walking around and saying, oh, why, why didn't I get that blessing? Or why am I not like that? Why don't I look like that? Why don't I have these things? It's slavery. Salvation formation. The Ten Commandments, these ten words are not God saying, okay, I'm going to break it down for you really simply, figure it out. No, they're about freedom. Forming us into a priesthood, this nation of slaves will take upon this name of God and will carry this blessing that was promised to Abraham to the rest of the world. They're forming us, spiritual formation in the way of love. Jesus would say it this way, not less in the commandments, mind you. But the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And there's a second commandment that's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we trace the arc of the Exodus story that we've surveyed so, so quickly, so it's really good, read it. We see this incredible truth unfolding. God hears the cries of the oppressed. God is always the God who hears the cries of the oppressed. And who among us have, hasn't found ourselves groaning and crying out under the weight of our slavery? Whether it be the reality that we have imposed upon ourselves by our own hardening of hearts like Pharaoh, turning away from God ever so subtly but consistently, or whether it be the realities that sometimes have been imposed upon us as people do evil, as people have uh, exhibited their own brokenness into our lives. And if God is the God who always hears the cries of the oppressed, then merely to cry out to God is to begin to transgress the order of the way that things are. When God gives the divine name to Moses, when Moses says, what is the name of this God that is sending me to, to enact this great act of liberation? God says, I am who I am. And in our world, everything says that it is what it is, that to, tomorrow will be like today. And what God says to Moses in that moment is that I am is greater than it is what it is. God is greater than your circumstances. God is greater than whatever is keeping you enslaved. And he will come to you and he will liberate you and he will call you to himself. Jesus, when he would talk about the work that he was undertaking, would talk about this in the sense of Exodus. When he opens the scroll of the book of Isaiah, in the first text that he reads in Luke chapter 4, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to declare good news to the captives and freedom for the oppressed, to open the eyes of the blind. God is bringing his freedom near to us, and we are called to be his people. 
And when Jesus would reflect on what he was called to do, he would use this image of Passover. And if you have the communion elements, I invite you to pull them out. In a moment, we're going to move just to a time of response, a time of the table. And then we're simply going to ask God to show up. Because we believe that God is here, present with us, walking among us right now. Wanting to do a work that is no less significant than the work that we see here in Exodus of liberation in us. And so we're simply going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And to speak the words that I can't say. That you were called to freedom. That you were called to his life. And Jesus, when he sat down on the last night of his life, he said to this, I have longed to share this Passover feast with you. Jesus' life is given as a Passover. God's great new exodus forming a new people, calling us to himself again. We were called to freedom. And how many of us have settled for the slavery of Egypt? God is calling to us. He's parted the waters and he's saying to us in the most profound and almost like ridiculous way, all you have to do is take a step. And Jesus on the cross is God revealing God's self to us. This is who God is. Not only does God hear the cry of the oppressed, not only does God know what they're saying, He has gone through it Himself. He has suffered and died on our behalf. But just as the moment when the slaves looked back and they saw the Egyptian army pursuing them, that's never the last word. Despair, loneliness, the fear of the future are never the last word because on the third day Jesus got up out of the tomb and he is alive and risen and reigning forevermore and he gives us this meal, this Passover meal to be formed, to remember that we are saved by grace and that his grace is sufficient for anything that keeps us enslaved. So we receive this in the absurdity of faith.